You're listening to Titan Nature's Yellowstone, a podcast for those that don't get out, can't get out, or can never get enough. Sponsored by Think Tank Photo. Think Tank Photo designs camera carrying solutions for working professionals. So welcome to another episode of Titan Nature's Yellowstone. I'm excited today. I have George Buman with me. How are you doing, George? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Adam. Yeah. Uh, so George is, well, he's a little bit of everything. You're an artist, you're a storyteller, you teach classes. Kind of t- tell us a little bit about yourself and what, what you do, your background. Yeah, I think you, you hit it with one of those bullet points, uh, probably qualify greatest uh, as a storyteller. I grew up kind of in a in a family of storytellers. My grandfather started a cultural history museum in the area of New York State that I grew up in, and it covered 10,000 years of human history, right from Paleo-Indian culture up through World War One. And as a kid, followed him around the museum, and at the age of about 12, started doing docent and curatorial work with, with grandpa. And so I've probably been doing that sort of thing longer than anything. And, you know, growing up, I had two central passions, you know, my mom's a sculptor. So by virtue of osmosis, I had a passion for art and uh, the outdoors, you know, we grew up on a lake. And as soon as I was allowed to, I was off in the canoe by myself in the swamps and, you know, those sort of places. And um, it naturally unfolded that I thought I'll try that as a, as a line of work or at least study in college and, and ended up going through uh, both bachelor's and master's in wildlife ecology studies and research and worked on everything from predator-prey re- relationships with rough grouse and uh, eastern, northeastern coyote ecology and, and dietary studies to um, aquatic stuff. You know, I hit, I hit a lot of different things, taught, ended up teaching helping teach dendrology, you know, tree identification, mammalogy, ornithology, really just loved all the ologies. Um, But to be honest, there are a lot of the things that really attracted me to a love of the outdoors were things that didn't get accentuated or, or treated very fully in the academic world. So to be fair, I came out of academia feeling like I had all this knowledge and info and did all this work and not really many people knew what the heck I did or, or cared. Okay. <laughs> Which, being a storyteller, that was the whole point is to help people care about things that may be outside of their sphere. So um, that's just a little bit about me. So moving on with, with what you just talked about, how did you get to Yellowstone? What brought you here? I mean, you have the background on the wildlife and things. Was it because there's so much here? What, what brought you here? <laughs> that's, that's a funny question because um, a lot of people presume I sort of led the ship when Jenny and I, my wife and I moved here and it's complete opposite. She had actually worked out here in the mid nineties on a coyote research project. And when we met in Virginia where I was doing graduate work and she was working uh, for the university, um, we hit it off. We got married there, but I finished up that academic career and said, if, in almost verbatim, wherever you want to go, darling, <laughs> as long as there's some woods and water, <laughs> I'll be fine, you know, and um, she wanted to come back here to Yellowstone, 
And so I just followed along. And with my background, it was a, it was a natural fit for both of us really. And, um, it's been a, just a fantastic venue for both of us to just dig in deeper to the natural world, but also, you know, our own inner worlds too, figuring out what works and what doesn't. And so one of the things you know, I'd like to talk about with you today is animal behavior and the animal language, um, which you are very familiar with. But before we kind of get into that, with your sculpting, have you been sculpting all along? You know, I drew and I sculpted as a kid. I think if, like most kids, if you have access to it, you're doing it intuitively and inherently. And um, I did right up to my early teens and, and honestly, kind of growing up in the art scene, my mom being a professional sculptor, it just uh, kind of soured me. <laughs> you know, I'd much rather have been fishing bass, right? I wanted to be on the docks, on the lake, in the boat or whatever, instead of having to sit there and model for my mom or help tear down the clay off a, a monument that she had just finished or something like that. And you get to see that the dirty underbelly of that world. And so I, I'm going whole hog into the natural history route. And the interesting thing, Adam, is as I did that, uh, I found that there was an itch that just wasn't being scratched. Like there was an interactive piece of being in nature that there weren't words for. There was not a prescription for alleviating. It, it, it was just sort of this... Um, the sector of my inner world that had a hard time maybe explaining or rationalizing or exploring all that I found in the natural world. And so as an undergraduate student, I stayed an extra semester and one of my profs um, had illustrated a few of his own books in pen and ink. And so he kind of got me back into drawing and I kept doing that for publications and other things for um, several years. And it wasn't until after we moved here to Yellowstone, then my dad actually came down with uh, cancer and mom was still sculpting and doing projects on the road. And I flew out around the country on a few occasions to help her finish jobs so she could get home to be with dad for chemo. And that was a real eye opener on a lot of different levels. But one of the things that did reveal itself to me is that all of this art training and history being in the studio was still in there. And I came home from some of those experiences saying to, to Jenny, I think I got to try this again. I, I don't know for sure whether it will fill this void. I sort of feel lingering, but I, I got to try it. And so in 2005, I actually dove headlong into it and have been doing it more or less professionally you know, as, as, as the means to keep the roof over our head since then. And it really has been a wonderful flashpoint for me. I felt like to explore and mull over a lot of the things that I found getting to know in many cases, specific individual wild animals for the, sometimes their whole lives, you know, you know, here in Yellowstone, you, yeah. you, you get to follow certain wolf packs or elk or bison for days, weeks, months, years. And that's a rare thing. That's an extraordinarily rare thing um, to have that sort of rapport or understanding or background with specific non-human beings. And to me, the art was really a way to find out what that meant, <laughs> you know, what, what that did for me and to me. Yeah. Maybe. 
And that's kind of why I asked, because I remember seeing you out in the field one time. I was on a tour with the people and you were out sculpting. And we stopped and we we chatted and you were you were uh, sculpting a bison. It was a bull bison. And you were noticing details that I think the average person doesn't see. You know, whether that's, you know, the, the, I think this one specifically was um, part of the hump. And there was a, almost like a second hump there or something. And you were you just mentioned that to my group that these details that you were looking at and seeing while you were in the field. And so does, do you think your art or having that background and sitting there in the field, you know, relates to this behavior and you're noticing more things or you've picked up on things over time? Yeah, I think without question, if you're having to first off internalize, but also internalize in a way to share with someone else, it, it, really forces you to reconcile what it is you're seeing and hearing. And, and so the art definitely for me has been, the art informs the natural history experiences and the nature informs the art. It's, it's this two-way street. And, you know, those things I was talking to your group about were things that I've never noticed until I had to notice them. You know, yeah. you, you, okay. It's not just a bison, it's that bison. And what makes it that bison? Well, it's that unique mark on its horn. It's the way the coat is not fully shut off. It's you know all these other physical features, but in the end, those outward physical encounters do something to our insides. You know, and that's, that's why um, I wanted to do this today and talk about animal behavior. And kind of what you were just saying is I want people when they go out to Yellowstone, whether that's with a tour or by themselves, however they get out there's those to notice those things. You know, maybe right. it's their first time seeing a bison. And right. it's it's like, well, it's a bison. But I want them to say, what is that? Why is it doing what it's doing? Yeah. Why does it have that hump on its back? And so that's kind of what you were just talking about. So I'm trying to translate that into the person that's coming out here for the first time. Right. And it's, I think the greatest gift they can ever give themselves is time. You know, it, it helps to have a guide to get you over some of the, um, I remember the first time we came to Yellowstone, it was on our honeymoon, part of our honeymoon trip. And I saw a coyote that wasn't just a flash across the road and gone. You know, I, you know, I did a research project where we were focusing on tallying every single predator species and how many across years. And I was analyzing this day. So I was keenly tuned into every goshawk, every Cooper's hawk, every owl, every coyote, every fox, every bobcat. And in three and a half years, I saw three coyotes in Virginia. And so I see this coyote in Yellowstone and the thing's just out in the field, just hanging out and without a care in the world. And I blew through two rolls of film, you know, back in the yeah. film days. I'm like, this is incredible. And then we went around the corner and there's four more. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, this is insane. You know, and so you you want to harness that that excitement, but you also, as a first-time visitor, want to see beyond those initial impressions into some of the really substantive stuff that most first time or casual visitors miss because therein lies the real meaning of the experience in my opinion what you actually take home is not you know the tally of the number of coyotes you saw there's there's something 
a layer or two or more beneath that that it's there's a great quote i think it's by my angelo about you know and it's a great one for educators you know people won't remember what you did they won't remember what you said <laughs> there are a couple other things but they'll always remember how you made them feel yeah that's you know, great. And allowing this this park or place any place to to make its impression on you um in a way that becomes part of you you know that, that to me that's the real path to being a real steward for for anything but certainly for wild places yeah you know that i remember one time when i was being trained as a guide you know eight eight nine years ago and it was my first time to be out there and talking with the group and you know i still had the other guide with me and he was there to make sure i did it all right i remember getting out and watching a herd of bison and i was giving him time because you know i remember that first time seeing a bison or whatever it was it's like there's a 2000 pound animal right there. You know, you're excited about it. And the other guy just started talking. And for me, it was like, no, give them a second. They can't hear you anyways. Yeah. Yeah. So when somebody yeah. gets out there and I guess the other part of that is once they, they see that they're going to ask questions, they, they want to know what yes. it is. And so let's say somebody's out there and first time seeing something with a bear or a wolf, uh, bison elk what do you think they should be looking for what is there a behavior or anything in particular you'd say hey this is try to draw into this yeah well I'll first say good on you for leaving some air in the room i think that is a uh, a malady of a lot of educators is to feel like they have to be saying something all the time when in fact what you're there to do is to be a you know for lack of a better term a conductor you know like of, a, of an orchestra you are creating an experience you're not just doing a, a brain dump with every group you're with you have that conversation of allowing the space for them to find their their own curiosity within things and and so i mirror that too i let them have time and let them almost start to get bored before I drop something on them, you know, and we're very social creatures, you know, the, the, among the most social and so are bison. And so a lot of times what I will try to impress upon them or get them to start looking for are the relationships, you know, who's, what mother does that calf belong to? Does that calf have, you know, there are two calves, bison only have one calf, but <laughs> Does that mom have two calves? You know, just kind of lead people on and let them to let them start trying to solve some of their own riddles. And then by magic, they come up with their own. But in the process, by giving them some of these mini assignments to look at what that bull coming in is doing versus the bulls who are already in that herd and, and such, they start pulling in subconsciously a sense of what it's like to be a member of bison society. You know, and it's like this flower, it just kind of starts to bloom and blossom and open up in a way that the more time you give them, the more they start to see. That goes back to that, you were you know, mentioned the storytelling. You're letting them create the story to see how, you know, how this story unfolds. Let them be part of that story. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, a great, a great piece from a, an artist acquaintance of mine, Tim Lawson, a very well-respected landscape painter. And uh, he was quoted in the, the news magazine, The Week, a while ago. And uh, 
Tim framed it this way. He says, art, and we could extend this to the experience in nature, is what happens between the person and the thing hanging on the wall. Yes. Yeah, it's it's that interaction of the two of us, you bringing your unique background and experiences to this situation. And I learn a ton as a as a guide and educator or over the years, the insights that people have brought just by leaving the air in the room to share what they see going on in something that honestly they may not have the training as a biologist to know exactly what's going on, but as a human being, it's really revelatory what you see just seeing it through someone else's eyes. Yeah. And so, you know, we're talking about this, this visual idea that we're, we're viewing things, but at the yeah. same time, you know, we got to, I think it's important to think about everything else out there too, is I like people to pick up the rock, you know, sometimes maybe skip it across or fill the little pieces of obsidian. Yeah. Um, but also the listening as you're listening out there, there's a lot of cues as well. And yeah. that's, you know, kind of something that you're into is the, and you're, trying to teach people about is the animal language. You know, yeah. what is animal language? Well, you know, animal language is another way to access the senses. You know, I think a lot of people are just predisposed to be drawn to animals, perhaps more than they are the rock or the plant and, and things like that at the start. You know, it, it's an easy on-ramp to appreciating nature in a new way is yeah. other animals, the eyes, the, the, the fur, the, the social nature, the interact, you know, that kind of stuff is an easy step for a lot of people, but what they often discount because we are so visual is and are all of our other senses and the interactions of our senses. And so I'll routinely take groups um, in the times I still do teach and we'll get out before dawn. And I tell them before we get off the vehicle, we're going to go out and we're going to stand for five, 10 solid minutes. There's no talking. I don't want anyone to move. I don't even want you to rustle your jacket. If you can help it, I want you just to listen, you know, especially in the dark, it's good because it takes away that, that default sense. You know, we're, we're so driven by our eyes that we often discount hearing scent, you know, smelling olfaction, taste, touch, you know, touch all these other things. And when you start showing them, A, what they can find themselves, but also B, what that means, um, it really starts to make things interesting. So for instance, you know, one peep out of one bird or one yap out of a coyote can potentially lead you into the most dramatic, you know, the most incredible drama <laughs> unfolding in a place like Yellowstone or anywhere else that you can possibly imagine. You know, by using those senses fully, um, it gives you the maximum chance to be in the seat at the opera house before it starts to see all the inner workings, you know, of the stage set up and final checks, and then to see the whole drama unfold. You know, so much of life is coming in midstream or, you know, the classic, hey, oh, you should have just been here, the grizzly bear did such <laughs> and such, and now it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But training people even in the, in the simplest sense to find these cues in nature that tell you about big meaning and 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 this chain of events so something as simple as <gasps> by a raven that should stop your car you should stop and get out for that one call 
because that call has meaning. Animals have language, not perhaps in exactly the way humans do, we think. You know, we haven't interviewed them fully <laughs> in their own language enough to know exactly what they're doing or not, but we have these associative things tied to various vocalizations. So they don't have recursion and, you know, syntax or grammar perhaps in the way our language does, but they do have meaning in the sounds they make. They wouldn't be making them otherwise. And so the more you can tune people into something as simple as what the sparrow might say here. Is the same thing it's saying in your own backyard in Illinois. It may be talking about a hawk or an owl in that case. It could be talking about a bear here or the same hawk and owl species. So getting them to start questioning what they've taken for granted their whole lives because of a place like Yellowstone. It, Yellowstone kind of stops people midstream. And even if they aren't quite into nature, they have to be <laughs> or they're predisposed to be here. And it's a great point to grab them. Yeah. You know, I, I think that people coming here tr start tuning into some of those things. So I was just thinking as you were talking about, you know, some of the cues that I've heard people pick up is, is things that are different for them. The one I think I see the most is the, what are they, the little grasshoppers that click? Yeah. Like, yeah. 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 And yeah, people like grasshoppers. What is that? People, they notice it because it's not something they're familiar with. Yeah. Click, or click, with, click, 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 click. Yeah. Yeah. Or some of the raven calls when the, the more of the knocking sound they do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so it's, yeah. it's something as I like what you, you said is you just let them stop and just listen. Cause some of these sounds they, they pick up on, I think pretty fast, like that, that wasn't normal. And other things we've kind of learned to tune out, you know, we're, we're so busy um, yeah. there's so much going on. There's birds singing all the time, you know, so we've tuned them out. If we come back in and just sit for a second, I like that where you can start hearing again, I guess you could say, and yeah. come up with those sounds that are telling maybe a story or, you know, like you said, this is a reason to stop. I remember hearing a, a Junko one time, just the little, the, you know, doing its yeah. fisking sound. Yeah. And I thought, that's weird. I'm, I get out of my car and there's a great gray owl. It was the first one I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. that's when I started yeah. picking up on some of that as well. That, that animal language, like, yeah, there's, there's something to, to learn out there from this. Yeah. It makes sense. Right. You know, here's, here's an animal that is like we, but we're sort of veiled from it in, in our modern version of our, ourselves is this cal calorie economy. You know, you have to either get more food to carry out what you need to do, or you need to save the energy you've gotten from previous meals. You know, so there's constant struggle. Of, do you go out and feed over there because there could be a predator or, you know, so there's this back and forth of how do you meet your ends without coming to your end? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it makes sense that you wouldn't flee as if your life depended on it for every single thing that came down the pike. You know, it makes sense that if there's an ability to use very little energy and send a message about what's happening around you, you can make a judgment as to whether you need to just keep on feeding or do something drastic. And so, you know, that Robin or crow or sparrow or junco is not only listening to what other robin sparrows and juncos are saying what i don't think a lot of people realize is the robin is being listened to by the junco the junco is being listened to by the deer the deer is being watched by the magpie the magpie is being scared by the eagle 
You know, and there's it, it, it more than perhaps anything in my own experience has conveyed a sense of this amorphous theoretical intellectual thing about the web of life, right? You know, all these things are connected. Yeah, we kind of get that, but we don't really. Here's a chance to experience it. And that's one of the coolest ways I've found to get people tuned into that web is through through that language, that signal system. And it's amazing. Like these signals, and if there's trouble, it spreads throughout the community over hundreds and hundreds of yards to a better part of a mile at speeds of over 100 miles an hour. Uh, it just blows people's mind that the animals are talking anyway, yeah. right? Like the dawn chorus is just this wall of blinking noise that gets you up on a Saturday morning when you'd much rather be sleeping, right? They don't even conceive the fact that those are conversations. Yeah, Those are messages being sent and received. And we sort of roll that sound into the body of noise that we create that we ignore, you know? And so... <laughs> taking them out of their typical element and into a new one where they see that these things are actually all talking amongst themselves. And they're even talking about you. They're talking about you and passing the message on. And that kind of, it freaks some people out. It's like, no. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So with, do you have any stories of, let's say, you know, whether it's the Raven or the coyote up or the, You've heard something and you've queued on and have seen a story unfold in Yellowstone. Yeah. Yeah. It's just every day, every day. Once you start looking for this stuff and realizing it's there, you see it every day. Um, yeah. I think of one instance where I was out with some friends where this is a great way to tune into bird language um, is to do it as a group, you know, space out, you know, as a group, you know, place people around in a, in a finite area. And then, sit for an hour or more and then compare notes at the end you know oh did you see that deer oh yeah i saw it when it was coming in and it did this and it did that. you really are able to harness the the observations of all these people to piece stuff together and we happen to be doing this one day with a, a small group of friends and i was on the periphery of of the group on the northern end and i was sitting there is nothing like first first half hour, there's not a sound of anything. I don't see any animals. I don't hear anything. I can see for miles almost in some cases in certain directions. But then I hear chickadee, chickadee. Now most people don't. You know, mo- most people recognize a chickadee. You know, robin, chickadees, blue jays, eagles. You know, those are kinds of species we know. But what most people don't know about that most common species is its namesake call is actually often used as an alarm and the number of d's that are attached to the chicka are a measure of the threat level of whatever it is that they're talking about so something that's dreadfully dangerous and scary to a chickadee like a bird hunting hawk a cooper's hawk or a sharpshin hawk or a pygmy owl will elicit 8, 10, 12, 15 Ds in a row, really quickly rendered and just in a feverish sort of pitch. But this was not, this was the other end of the spectrum. It was still an alarm because it was a chickadee, but it was two. So I thought, huh, that's weird. <laughs> kind of like with the, the jokos. And I looked and I didn't see anything. And about 30 seconds later, I looked to my right and here's a coyote standing in the broad open like 15 yards from me. 
and I'm downwind from it. So it doesn't smell me. And I'm in such a, such a spot that it doesn't fully see me and it looks over its shoulder and it carries on. Well, moments after that to the North further beyond me, about 150 yards, I hear two other alarm calls. In the Western United States, we have the towns in solitaire, which it's solitary note that you hear is an alarm. Likewise, with the red squirrel that also chimed in, they have a different alarm call for things that are in the air versus something on the ground. So hearing the latter, I'm like, there's something to the north of me, but I can't, I can't see into there. I don't know what's going on. So the one, the coyote I saw was since moved off the group kind of the sit, we call it the bird sit was over. We compared our notes and I told folks about what I'd seen, but there are pieces that just didn't add up. There was something else to the North. It seemed like. So I went with young George up there after this all was over and we went tracking and there was very little snow left, but there was one patch about the size of an average living room floor. And right across the middle of that was another and the freshest set of coyote tracks you can imagine. So this other coyote, which the other one, now that I pieced it all together, had looked over its shoulder to see if it was following, I think picked up on the fact that one of my friends was down along the creek in front of me. And instead of following the trajectory of the other, did a big loop around to the north where it triggered Townsend Solitaire and the Red Squirrel's terrestrial predator call. They only did it briefly, but that was enough to let me know there was something else to this picture. And what they probably did was loop back up together and gone off to this. There was a carcass and bone dump that they would sometimes feed at. So the neat thing is you can extend your own senses if you learn to listen through your eyes and hear through your nose and do things like this to pick up your, through your senses, perhaps what these other thinking non-human beings are sensing. And so it keys you and lets you in on these stories in the way all of our ancestors did. Because we wouldn't be here if our ancestors hadn't paid attention to this stuff. It's, I would wager almost impossible that our ancestors would have survived to have kids had they not paid attention to animal language. It's only us modern people who have thrown it out with the baby in the bathwater. Yeah. It doesn't have the, the survival relevance that you know, looking at your 401k or being able to open the refrigerator <laughs> to, yeah. us, to us now. Right. And so it's just, it just opens up worlds. And when you start piecing together things that seem like magic, like sorcery or shamanism, it's like to people from the outside, you're like, you're, you're holy or, or something that you're not, you're just more observant and you paid attention to these signals, you know, the way you have with your photography and things, it's, it's always been there. It always will be. It's around you wherever you go, no matter where you live or travel. You just have to slow down to pay attention to it. As you were mentioning with, you know, our ancestors and, you know, they keyed into these things and they survived. I think that for us, especially in a place like Yellowstone, we got to key in on some things. Like when the bison raises its tail, you know, what is that telling us? (laughs) Right. So there's also this, the safety side that we got to think about. We're out there. Sure. Um, you know, how, what do you do to make sure that you're safe or how do you key on or what do you do 
as you see these these animals to make sure that you're safe. I mean, for me, I tell my boys, uh, if you're smart, you're safe. So basically, if you learn, you if you prepare, you go through the right things, you should be safe out there. There's always something. But what would you sure. say? Yeah, you know, I think safety is always first. You know, it's uh, Maslow's hierarchy. I guess they call it in in the in the outdoor or any any educational or or informational sphere is you have to take care of people's creature comforts first (laughs) before they can understand or appreciate anything. And even when we go out ourselves, you know, we're always playing the what if game, you know, what if this herd of bison decides to turn this way, where are we going to (laughs) go? Are we going to get up on top of that big rock and let them go around us? Or are we going to run back to the car? Are we close enough to run back to the car or, you know, listening to the animal language in the area to know there's a carcass over there and we may not want to go over there because who might be (laughs) presiding over that carcass but a really big and protective grizzly bear yeah you know so both using your senses and your common sense and playing with those um scenarios just it it keeps people safe it's it's good to go with a guide or or at least consult with locals wherever you go you know they're going to tell you right off at the bat look out for this plant. Don't, I know it's going to look nice, a nice place to sit down for a picnic. Do not, yeah. <laughs> you know, put your, your picnic basket in the middle of that poison oak or, um, you know, watch out for the hippos. You know, we're going to new places. A lot of times we just have no blinking clue. And so to get those safety tidbits from those who know, you know, you don't have to be that worried about X, Y, or Z, but you do need to pay attention to this. Like, Yellowstone's a great example. Everybody thinks about bears, right? But the most dangerous animal by statistical analysis is the bison. Yeah. And it's largely because of people's inability or um, their, their unwittingness to the fact that they're not just big wild cattle. They're extremely agile, very fast moving, very dangerous if you push their buttons. But if you give them their space, you're fine. Okay. You know, and so those are kind of the principles we work on. Bear spray, we always carry it though. You know, we, we all often look at it like a, a seatbelt in a car. You know, you always put it on. Yep. Or you hope people do these days, and you hardly ever need it. But that one day and that one fraction of a second that you do need it, you're very glad you have it. You know, know how to use it in the case of something like bear spray. So yeah, that's great. So had a if. Somebody's visiting Yellowstone, let's say the first time, or maybe they're coming back. What type of what tip would you give to somebody visiting Yellowstone? Don't try to do it all. Great tip, uh, especially if they're coming back. If you're like us, I think you find things that that um, pique your your fancy. You know, you're really into the geysers. You go back and just focus on geysers, or you really discover the fly fishing. You know, really dig into fishing trout or. If it is the wildlife, give yourself the time, maybe just focus on that one thing or focus on it primarily and then take a day or two and do some other fun things too. But um, the real relationships and the joy and the memories come out of, for me, and I know this is the case with a lot of students too, and friends who come to visit for the first time is those really memorable things come out of feeling like you're a part of something. Uh, feeling you have a connection that you wouldn't have gotten just driving the roads and taking pictures and doing the typical tourist thing. You hear the 
the the the phrase we we did Yellowstone last year, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you did. <laughs> what what did you do? <laughs> yeah. Have you canoed around the lake yet? No. <laughs> <laughs> right. You usually end up having, which is often the case, that they just drove all over hell as much as they could every single day and landed in the hotel exhausted, not knowing exactly what they did or didn't do. Yeah, you know, did we? Did we see Buffalo? <laughs> Probably everywhere across the entire park when you were driving through it. But um, you got to just give yourself the time and space to facilitate those connections. That's perfect. Thank you. And so, yeah. George, where um, where can people find your work? Um, you know, you have a a webinar out there on animal language. So, where can people find this? Find you. Sure. Yeah, you can certainly learn more at our websites. My art website is georgebuman.com. And I think Adam might put some notes in the show. I will. Show notes um, so you can just punch and go. But um, georgebuman.com has a lot of the art, um, sculpture primarily work. And then ayellowstonelife.com is our kind of lifestyle blog. It's where we share everything else. Um, tell those stories that sort of fall in between the art and what you know programs I, I lead you know, these days, which isn't too many anymore, but, um, and if you're really interested in learning more about the animal language and what that has to teach you, kind of have a primer and introduce introduction to it uh, and a free webinar and some other free articles and content. If you want to dive into it at uh, a yellowstonelife.com slash animal dash language, and that will get you to the page that just starts you preparing for when you come to Yellowstone you need to know what to look for and one of your best teachers towards doing that is maybe that squirrel or deer or sparrow in your own backyard the more time you spend learning them and appreciating them discovering what they have to teach you the more a you're going to appreciate your own home more but b the more prepared you are to be in terms of recognizing those same patterns, even if they're in different species here, because it's a, a lot of the, the animal language stuff is it may be different players. Like we were just we were in Costa Rica um, in recent times and in the past, and you know I don't know a single bird species down there hardly, but I could also, in spite of it, tell that there was a hawk coming over the jungle canopy just by the same type of behaviors that those birds were doing compared to what happens here with the magpies and the robins and and the toeys and then oh sure enough there's the hawk coming across the opening between us and us and the in the coast and it flies over the next patch of jungle canopy so the patterns the play is almost like an, uh, a play you know the stage is the same the actors may change but the play and the lessons and the insights are very similar across the board. So look for that stuff and, and by all means, reach out to us, join the, the um, newsletter list if you'd like, and we can keep you in, in the loop on updates and things like that. Thank you. And I highly recommend George. I have actually been in the field, taking one of his classes on animal behavior and you, the, the amount of information that he has and that uh, you can learn from these webinars, from his newsletters, from the things that he has is worth uh, looking into. Uh, again, thanks for joining us, George. And yeah. thank you for everybody tuning in to another episode of Tied to Nature's Yellowstone. Thanks for listening to Tied to Nature's Yellowstone, the podcast for those that don't get out, can't get out, or can never get enough. Keep up to date with Tied to Nature and Think Tank Photo on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube.